0: Hello, I am Matthew Hurst, the worship minister of First Baptist Church Watauga, and we want to simply say thank you for listening to these messages. We'd like to invite you on Sunday morning at 1045 to join us in worship of God and to hear from his word. Our mission here at FBC Wataga is to exalt the Savior equip the saints, and to evangelize the lost one person at a time. So I pray as you listen to these messages that you would be encouraged and equipped as you listen to the word of the Lord today. A few weeks ago, right after uh, school was starting back, Susan was just finishing her extended spring break that went on for about six months. And... Uh, because of that, she was uh, having to get up early again and uh, going to bed early. Well, I ended up uh, in my study, studying late uh, that night, and all the other lights were off in the house. And, uh, you know, I know our house pretty well. I know the upstairs. I know how to get from our study to the bedroom, right? But sometimes when it's dark, what you think you know, you really don't know. And now I avoided uh, going all the way down the stairs. I was able to find the stairwell and turn left and and then turn right into our bedroom in the dark. But what I did not avoid was the bedpost at the foot of the bed. And uh, my toe hurt for about a week after that. I eventually made it. But oftentimes we think we know what we really don't know we're going to begin our study with a a Nicodemus who thought he knew. Uh, And he's going to run into a man who did know. As much as we can be fooled by the darkness and by uh, a map or by getting around our house, how much more so can we be fooled by the heart of man? I've seen it time and again in ministry where uh, someone would enter into a relationship, uh, certainly marry someone who they, they thought they absolutely, completely knew, only to find out a few weeks or a few months or a few years down the road that they really didn't know uh, the person. They didn't know the heart of the person that they were coming into contact with. The difference between us and Jesus is Jesus knows the heart of man. We're going to begin uh, in John chapter 3, I'm going to read the last verse of John chapter 2 because there's an important connection there. But John chapter 3 begins a series of of, uh, stories of Jesus interacting with people. We begin here with Jesus first interacting with uh, uh, Nicodemus, this Pharisee, and then we have Jesus interacting with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. Following that, we'll have Jesus interact with a centurion who he heals his son. And so the way John is structured, a good bit of John, uh, is these stories of, of Jesus performing a sign. And then having an extended uh, interacting with someone and having an extended teaching time. And this is really the beginning of that. And that's why I think the end of chapter 2 is so important. And I mentioned this uh, last week. I drew your attention to it. Because at the end of chapter 2, the scripture says, Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all and because he did not need anyone to testify about man for he himself knew what was in man." That, that little tidbit from John followed on the heels of, John, of Jesus performing this, this miracle of turning water into wine and uh, it said that, that many people were beginning to believe Jesus or believe in Jesus because of the signs, because of the miracles. They saw some cool things happening and so they were beginning to believe in Jesus. Well. When you see these first few verses of chapter 3, you'll see even Nicodemus, this great religious leader, was beginning to believe in Jesus because of the signs. So read with me John chapter 3, we're going to read verses 1 down through verse 21. Now I'm well aware that it would be easy to preach an entire message just on verse 16. Or just on any other handful of verses in this passage. But I've chosen as we walk through the gospel of John. If we did that we would be studying John for the next three or four years. I've chosen to take these stories. And we'll take them a story at a time. So read this story with me. There was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus. A ruler of the Jews. This man came to him at night and said. Rabbi we know that you're a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you do unless God were with him. Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How can anyone be born when he was old? Nicodemus asked him. Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? Jesus answered, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases, and you hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can these things be, said Nicodemus? Are you a teacher of Israel and don't know these things, Jesus replied? Truly, I tell you, we speak that we know and we testify to what we have seen, but you do not accept our testimony. If I had told you about earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned. Because he has not believed in the name of the one and only son of God. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it, so that his deeds may not be exposed. But everyone who lives by the truth comes to the light, so that his works might be shown to be accomplished by God. Now certainly there is a lot here, and so we're going to move pretty quickly through this passage. I want to begin with who Nicodemus, who this guy is. The scripture tells us that he is a Pharisee, and he, uh, he was a ruler of the Jews. There's, that's Two key identifiers for us there were, there were a couple different parties among the religious elite in Jerusalem, uh, and we see them a lot in the New Testament. At least two of these parties we see a lot are, are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You also had other groups that were referred, referred to as the zealots uh, who were a little bit more rebellious out there on the, on the fringe edge. You had to, and yet these two groups are key groups. The Sadducees tended to be the very wealthy. Uh, elite. They were the ones who, uh, who uh, oftentimes were represented among the high priests. They had a lot of the money, and uh, uh, they they had a they were a little bit more, uh, what you might say, liberal about how they went about things. The Pharisees were very. Strict and conservative, the Pharisees there were about six thousand Pharisees in the time of Jesus, and they came out of the middle class, not out of the ruling class. so one of the even though the Sadducees were the ones with the money and you would think have more influence the middle class connected with the Pharisees. And so they had a huge following. People loved the Pharisees to the extent that oftentimes uh, the Sadducees were, were careful about how they interacted with the Pharisees because they had so many people that loved them and followed them. The majority of the of the Jews of that day would have identified with the Pharisees as being their leaders. Now, the Pharisees were very strict uh, going about uh, the, the, the the rules and making sure that you follow every little jot and tittle of the law. In fact, uh, even to the extent that they, they upheld some of their human interpretations of the law to the same level or above uh, what they held the law itself. And so uh, that, that kind of describes him. And then in addition to that, there was a basically kind of like a supreme court, the Sanhedrin. Uh, it was made up of 71 key leaders. Now, they weren't necessarily all Pharisees, but they were key leaders of the Jews. And Nicodemus was one of those guys. So he was one of the, the elite of uh, the religious class of the Jews. He was one of the, the Supreme Court, so to say, uh, one of the 71 who were made up that group. And so for him to come and have interaction with Jesus uh, was quite striking Uh, Jesus at this point was none other than a carpenter. He was considered part of the middle class or even lower middle class. He was the one who made a living with his hands. And in fact, you're going to see later on in John, uh, as you read through John, that that the Pharisees, even though they represented the middle class, they came out of the middle class, they kind of put themselves above everybody else a little bit. And so for him to go to Jesus is quite a step. And yet... He goes to Jesus, why? Because he saw Jesus doing some signs that he recognized the only way that Jesus could be doing those was if God was with him. So he knew there was something different about Jesus. Even even though he might have uh, had some preconceived religious ideals that would keep him from believing in Jesus, he knew something was there. His heart was soft enough to be open. I guess is a way to put this. And I think that this is why, even though the Pharisees became the greatest enemy of Jesus, we see Nicodemus a couple times later on uh, warm up to Jesus, I guess you'd say. He kind of defended Jesus later on in the Gospel of John. And then I believe, uh, you know, we don't know for sure, but I believe that Nicodemus essentially became a follower and believer in Jesus Christ after the death of Christ, because this same Nicodemus is found at the end of the Gospels as being one who helped uh, bury Jesus, who, who came and brought uh, burial claws and, and, and things to help uh, put Jesus' body to rest. And, and ultimately, at that point, he did come out. Uh, to, to do that was to come out as someone who connected with and, and believed in Jesus. But at this point, here's the simple point I want to make in, in, from the first two verses, is this he thought he knew Jesus. He, he, he sees Jesus uh, doing these miracles, and so he, he thinks he knows him, and so he comes to him, and he uses a, a term of respect when he says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher. Well, certainly uh, for a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin, to refer to Jesus as Rabbi is a sign of respect that Very few Pharisees would have given Jesus. And he he says, I we we know that that you must have come from God. Uh, Now, who we is, I'm curious. I wonder how many of of Nicodemus's friends were having this discussion about whether Jesus was a teacher sent from God. But they there's at least a, a group there that believes Jesus is a teacher. Sent from God. Now, what they were not fully ready to accept was that Jesus was the Messiah, and certainly they weren't ready to accept that he was the suffering Messiah who was going to die on a cross for their sins and and be raised again. And so Jesus is going to confront that. But Nicodemus thought he had Jesus figured out. Just like oftentimes we think we have God figured out. But but let me let me put it this way: no matter how smart we think we are, no matter how (laughs) seamless our theology or our theological doctrine and our structure happens to be. God's bigger than your theology. God's bigger than your doctrine. He is bigger and broader and grander than what you may be able to figure out about him. I mean, you may spend all of your life, which nobody in here does. I sure don't. You you can spend all your life in the libraries studying the great authors and studying the Greek and studying the Hebrew and, 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 and trying to put God in some huge systematic theology where you think you got him figured out. Now you, you could read all of John Calvin's works and memorize all of those works and think that you've got a system that helps you understand God. God is still bigger than your system. There is no way that you can fully know God. Nicodemus thought he had Jesus figured out, but Jesus was much more than what Nicodemus would ever imagine. But the alternative to that is God does know us. He has us figured out. He knows our hearts. And in fact, we saw it at the end of chapter two, and you see it in how Jesus approaches Nicodemus. Jesus is gonna approach Nicodemus differently than he approaches the woman at the well, and he approaches the centurion, and he approaches everybody else, the blind man he comes in contact with. Why? Because Jesus knows the heart of man. He knows what's inside of us. If we can take guesses at what's inside a person based on what they do. J- Jesus knows. You know, we as humans are pretty good at putting up fronts. And pretty, we're pretty good at trying to deceive people. But we cannot deceive God. So ultimately, Jesus knows that as though Nicodemus is coming with his honest inquiry, Nicodemus is still steeped in his religion. And Nicodemus is is coming to Jesus as a teacher to better understand the things of the kingdom. Not knowing that his whole view of how you come into the kingdom is about to be jerked out from under him. And that's really what Jesus does. Because after Nicodemus comes to Jesus... And says, no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with me. You'd think Jesus would say, oh, Nicodemus, you're so wonderful. Thank you for patting me on the back. Thank you for the encouragement. You know, you're kind of on the right track, Nicodemus. But let me kind of redirect you a little bit. That's not what Jesus does. Jesus just looks at him and says, uh, truly, I tell you, unless someone is born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. <laughs> what? <laughs> it just kind of knocks Nicodemus off center. You, what are you talking about, Jesus? I'm, You know, I'm I'm coming and I'm encouraging you. I'm lifting you up. And Jesus says, yeah, but you want to know something, Nicodemus? Unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus, when he gets knocked off center here, uh, gives kind of a uh, snarky reply. I say this because there is no way that Nicodemus, who is a smart, learned, intelligent man, really believes that Jesus was saying you got to crawl back up in your mother's womb and come back out again. Okay. Nicodemus did not believe that's what Jesus was saying. What, what Jesus is trying to communicate, we're going to talk about here in a moment, but Nicodemus responds that way. Nicodemus says, well, how can, how can anyone when he is be, be born when he is old? Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? And Jesus goes on to teach, truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of flesh is flesh. Whatever is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Now I want to take all of these references to birth and kind of sum them up together because it's really easy to get caught up as we walk through this text uh, and struggle with what does it mean to be born of water or born of the spirit and, and uh, born of, uh, of, of blood or born of flesh and, and, and all of those kind of things. Uh, there, there's a, all kinds of theological discussion about that. And some people I try to identify uh, when Jesus says you've got to be born of the water and born of spirit. And I've struggled with this as well because if you look at this verse in its own context, you would you would immediately think, well, that means to uh, somebody's got to be born uh, physically, which we associate in our day being born with water, the amniotic fluid that comes at, at birth or before birth, uh, as opposed to being born of the Spirit, a second, renewed birth. And so a lot of scholars have leaned that direction. But I, I believe there's a better answer than that. And I, I think it comes from what would have been in the back of Nicodemus' head. So you, Nicodemus is intimately familiar with the Old Testament. And there's a passage in Ezekiel chapter, 20, uh, chapter 36 that, that gives this same imagery from God, where God is telling, telling his people that if they're truly going to enter into his kingdom, they have to come through him. And he's going to do something miraculous. So I, want, I want you to hear these two verses uh, from Ezekiel 36, 25 and 36. God tells Ezekiel, I will also sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will rem- remove your heart of stone and will give you a heart of flesh. You hear the imagery in Ezekiel, the prophecy from Ezekiel pointing to the Messiah and Jesus' words here. There, he, he is trying to communicate with Nicodemus that All the things that you've been doing to try to measure up to God simply are not enough. You must be made new. You must be born afresh, born anew. The word that's translated born again uh, there in, in, excuse me, in uh, in verse 3 could also be translated born from above. And so this imagery is that you have to be given a new life from God. It's not... Nicodemus, Certainly, you know that you're not called to, to go back up in your mother's womb and, and receive a second birth that way. You have to be born of God. You have to be born of the Spirit of God. And certainly, no one can fully understand what it means to be born of the Spirit of God. The Spirit is like the wind. In fact, the word that's used for Spirit in the Greek is pneuma. That's the exact same word that is translated wind in the Greek New Testament. Interestingly, in Hebrew, in the Old Testament, the word that's translated wind is ruach, and that's the exact same word that's used for the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, ruach. And so the the Holy Spirit is is given this, is translated in this way that helps us understand that that it's like the wind. We can't see the wind, and we don't know where the wind comes from and where it's going, but it accomplishes great things. If you don't believe that, come look at the north side of my roof. Okay? Wind can do a lot, even though it's just air, right? How can air hurt anything? But certainly, it can, it can move mountains, literally. And so, the, the, the Spirit of God is the one who has to bring you new life. And you can't easily define that, Nicodemus. And so where Nicodemus is, is, is struggling here, and what he's got to understand is everything that he has done up to this point to measure up to God isn't enough. Our religion isn't enough. And what I mean by religion is anything that we do to try to measure up to God. You know, if, if we think, well, if I just say enough prayers, then, then God's got to listen to me. If I say it the right way, then then God's got to hear me. You know, when I was a, a child, I thought that if I would go to church, this was my understanding of how I got saved. If I would go to church more Sundays than I skipped, then God would have to say, oh, well, he's pretty good. Because he, he, you know, 51% was my threshold. And I knew that we didn't go a lot when I was little because we went fishing a lot. And so I figured I had a lot of making up to do in my teenage years, right? I had to go a lot of Sundays to make up for those years that I missed. But if I could get to that 51% threshold, then God would have to accept me. That was my idea of religion. Others have an idea of religion that, that if I give a certain amount of money, then then, I've got, then I'm pleasing to God. Or if I teach, or if, I, if I'm a good husband, or if I'm a good father, then that makes me pleasing to God, and God has to accept me. For the Pharisees, the idea was if we keep the law and enforce it on other people, make sure other people keep the law, then we're the uber-religious, and God has to accept us. Jesus blows all that out of the water and says, look, Nicodemus, unless you were born... Again, you throw all that out, toss out all your religion, unless you come to a a faith in God that comes from the Spirit of God, you'll never see the kingdom of God. John MacArthur put it this way. He said, Jesus was making entrance into the kingdom contingent on something that could not be obtained through human effort. You cannot... Rope the Spirit of God. You cannot capture the Spirit of God. You can't enforce anything upon the Spirit of God. And and Jesus was saying that you must be born again. You can't do that on your own. There's no amount of human effort that, that enables you to rise up high enough to reach God. All that you can do is accept the work of the Spirit of God. To transform you so ultimately we need a new heart and a new spirit and that can only come from God himself to be born again means to be born from above and receive the new life that only comes from the Holy Spirit the Spirit of the Living God and third we receive forgiveness and healing through him in John chapter 14, we pick back up here. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the man, son of man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Once again, Jesus uses imagery that Nicodemus would have fully understood. There's a story from Numbers chapter 21 when the Israelites were wandering around in the wilderness and they'd gotten tired of eating manna. And and they were kind of fed up with God about that. And uh, even though God had been providing miraculously and abundantly for their needs, they didn't like what God was giving them. They wanted something else. They wanted more. And so they came moaning and complaining to Moses about how horrible this was and how they didn't like what God was giving them. So God said, okay, I'll give you snakes. (laughs) And... uh, God got fed up with their moaning and griping. So many of the Israelites became snake bit. And they came to to Moses and they said, Oh Moses, we done messed up. We should not have complained against God. Now he sent snakes to attack us. What are we going to do? Moses, would you please go to God and pray on our behalf and ask God to remove these snakes from us and heal us. Because we've sinned against God. So out of their repentance, God provided a solution. He told Moses to take his staff and make a bronze snake that looked like the snakes that were biting them. And ultimately, to hold that up in the middle of the camp, and all those who would look upon that in belief, believing in God's healing and trusting God for his healing, they would be healed of their snake bites. Those who refused to do that simple thing to look upon the snake that was lifted up in the wilderness would die there in the wilderness from their snake bites. It was very simple. It wasn't complicated at all, but those who looked upon that staff lifted up were healed. There's no question whatsoever that when God did that miracle in the wilderness, he was already preparing for what was to come. A couple thousand years later. He was already preparing the hearts and the minds of Jews to understand that someone was going to be lifted up for their sin and was going to die for their sin. Someone was going to be lifted up and when they would look upon him and believe in him, they would be healed of their sin. And so Jesus uses that illustration. For Nicodemus, remember a, a man who would have fully understood all the implications of that. And he says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. God's promise was I'm giving you a way to eternal life. Now Nicodemus certainly at this point would not have fully understood and would have struggled with who the Son of Man was and what Jesus meant by that. But Jesus gave him enough so that when he was lifted up on the cross a couple years later, I don't think there was any doubt in Nicodemus' mind about what was taking place. We must look to the cross, believing in the Son of Man, believing in Christ, to find eternal life. He gives us the pathway to the new heart. He gives us the pathway to being born again. He shows us what it takes so that we can see the kingdom of God, and it comes through the cross of Jesus Christ. Just as the snake was lifted up in the wilderness, so also the Son of Man will be lifted up so that everyone, in verse 15, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. And then Jesus goes on to explain, God did this because he loves us. One of my favorite verses, and y'all hear me quoted often, is from Romans chapter 5, verse 8, where Paul writes these words. He said, God demonstrated his own love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you ever have any question about the love of God, whether or not God loves you, and I have, I've questioned that before. I've gotten frustrated, I've gotten upset. I've gotten, uh, I've struggled sometimes because I didn't like some of the things that God allowed in my life or that he did in my life. And I'm sure I'm not the only one in this room. But I've learned that in those times when I begin to doubt or struggle with God's love, all I have to do is look to the cross Because there's no greater picture of love shown than when God sent his son to die on the cross so that if I would trust in that gift of forgiveness and healing that comes to the cross, I'd receive eternal life. Why? Why would God do that? Because he loves me. Because God wants to spend time in in a relationship with me. God wants me to be able to enter into eternal life and and, and to experience... uh, uh, a life with him that he had originally intended when he created us as human beings. God never intended for us to be condemned, for us to be separated from him. That was never God's intention. In fact, we're going to see in a little bit, God doesn't condemn anyone. It's our sin that condemns us. We ourselves condemn us. God gave us a way to eternal life because he loves us so much. We've got to believe in the provision that God has given to us. We've got to trust in God's only son because eternal life only comes through Jesus. But isn't that just too simple? You mean, what God's asking of me is not to do a whole bunch of religious acts. What God's asking of me is to look upon his son, to humble myself before him and and receive that gift of eternal life that he offers. It's that simple. But you know what? There's a lot of people that died in the wilderness because they thought that that sounded stupid. They thought it was too simple to look at the snake that Moses held up on the staff. And there's, there are untold millions <laughs> of intellectuals, dare I say both secular and religious, intellectuals that will spend eternity separated from God because it just seems too simple that God would send his son to die so that you and I could have new life, a new heart and a new spirit. But that's the exact message not just of this text but of the gospel God so loved us. He loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us. And then finally, as you look down through verse 18 through verse 21, if there's any question left, God does not want us to miss this. I did not come to condemn you. I came to set you free. You were condemned because of your own sins. You were condemned because you turned your back on me from the very beginning. I I told you if you go down this road... If you do something stupid, you're going to end up in a mess. I, I, have y'all ever? I, I know that some of us uh, struggle with the idea of being helicopter parents, and we don't want to let our kids mess up. And we don't want them to fail because, you know, sometimes parents, I think, I think if, if the kids fail, then, then it's a reflection on us that we failed. And so we struggle with all of that. But have you ever just said, you know what? I, I, you know, I know I've told Susan this before, let them try. It's going to hurt, but they'll learn. You know, when uh, I'll tell you, I may not tell this when we put it on video. Uh, When uh, Carrie moved into the house a couple years ago, drove me nuts because she went to every cabinet in our, in our house and put those little latches on it that were child proof. The problem was they were also dentist proof. It'd take me forever to get the, the broom out of the cabinet because you know we, we had to protect the kids from all the things. And, and then, then we had uh, every plug. You couldn't plug anything in until first you got that, that little plastic thing out of there and, and so that you could plug something and you could actually use the electricity. You know how I learned not to stick things in a plug I put a knife in one, once. Dad said, you won't ever do that again, will you? Nope, I won't. God told Adam and Eve, if you do that, you're going to die. And they did it anyway. God looks at us. He gives us his word and he says, If you go down that road to sexual immorality, you're going to destroy your family. And we do it anyway. And he says, If enough of you start going down that road to sexual immorality, you're going to destroy your nation. And we do it anyway. And he says, If you're, if you're, Contingent, you, you, You're insistent on living with a rebellious spirit and a rebellious heart. Your culture's gonna fall apart. And we do it anyway. God hasn't condemned us. Our sin has condemned us. Our, our obstinate, steadfast desire to rebel against God And against his rules and against what he has set in place. You know what? If you jump off a 20-story building and you hit the road, you're going to go splat. That's what we've done as a culture. And that's what far too many of us do with our lives. We haven't condemned ourselves. I mean, we've condemned ourselves. God hasn't condemned us. God gave us a way to escape judgment. In fact, in Christ, he brought this giant beaming light into the world and says, look at me, follow me, I'll not only show you how to get there, I'll empower you so that you'll you'll be able to overcome your sins and your shortcomings and your, your addictions. Just look to me. And God gave us this huge light. And some of us got to the edge of the light and we looked at our flesh and we went, man, I'm pretty dirty. I don't want people to see that. I'm going back in the darkness. And so the next few verses are pretty self-explanatory. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned, because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people loved darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it, that his deeds may not be exposed but anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. I have never seen this truth fleshed out more than I'm seeing it right now. This, just this morning, uh, I saw the uh, story of two LAPD, or LA Sheriff's detectives that were ambushed and shot in their vehicle last night. Man walked up to them, they were sitting there i uh, just sitting there in a patrol car and shot both of them. Both of them are fighting for their life right now. LAPD tweeted that out. Sent it out in their news uh, tweet. When you follow that tweet string down, what you see following that immediately are the most vile, horrible, dark, ugly post that you'll ever see. People saying they deserved it. People saying, oh, that's well, what, that's what police get for being police. All these kind of things. And in almost every case, those vile tweets are hidden behind fake names. They're anonymous. They're hidden in darkness. Because when, when we do evil, we don't want everybody to know exactly where it's coming from. When do most of the riots take place? At night, under the cover of darkness. Interestingly, when did Nicodemus come to Jesus? At night. Because he wasn't fully ready to believe. He wasn't ready at this point to accept this idea that Jesus was more than a good teacher I believe that later on he was, when he came out in the daylight to take care of Jesus' body. Ultimately, because of Jesus, we get a pretty good picture of the difference between good and evil. He brought a light into the world, and we choose whether or not we're going to live in the light or we're going to live in darkness. That's our choice. If we choose to live in darkness, it's because we're hiding something already. I'm going to ask Matthew to come and lead us in just a closing hymn today. As I look around and I see this group, I'm, I, I believe that I know y'all, but I said up front that I can't truly know a man's heart. Only God can. And so I don't know if, if uh, for 100% certain, if you're a religious person, Or if you truly have received that new spirit and that new life, that new heart from God. And so I'm going to plead with you to allow the Spirit of God to speak to you as we sing this hymn. And if you have any questions today, if you would say, Pastor, I've been religious all my life, but I'm not sure that I've ever received the new heart and the new life, the new spirit that comes from God, please reach out to me and talk to me about it. We're not gonna do an invitation here at the altar, but if you have a question about that, and, and the Spirit of God's pricking your heart, we're talking about an item that is more important than life or death. We're talking about something that means eternal life or eternal death. So if you're not sure that you have been born from above, that you've received the new life, a new spirit that comes from the Spirit of the living God, and you've been faking it, you've been being religious, but you haven't been real with Christ. Please reach out to me or Kevin. Hey, folks, this is Pastor Dennis Hester, and I want to thank you for joining First Baptist Watauga through our podcast and hearing the message today. My prayer is that you are encouraged and uplifted by the preaching and teaching of God's Word. Our goal here is to equip you in your faith and to encourage you as you worship the Lord and seek to serve Him. If you have a question or you have a decision that you'd like to make, I'd encourage you to reach out to us through our website at fbcwatauga.org or simply call the church office. You can find that number or our email addresses there on that website as well. And by doing that, uh, we'd be glad to hear from you and we'd be encouraged by hearing what God's doing in your life. So God bless you and have a great day.